Hi, this is Ryan Fraser. This is Troy Daly. This is Gus Boyet. This is Don Hutchison. This is Jürgen Klopp, and you're listening to The Big Interview with Graham Hunter. Thank you, Jürgen. I travel to all these interviews from Barcelona, and our socios, our beloved members, keep us on the road. This independent podcast wouldn't happen without them. Please go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter right now to join us, to become a socio, and to get every interview we produce without adverts and before it goes out on the main feed, plus lots of bonus content, including the chance to put questions to our guests and to me via the monthly Q&A. So do please go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter and join the club and get your family and friends to do so. Maybe even strangers in the street. Love you. Welcome back. Yes, it's part two of Brad Friedel. Honestly, the fun, the quality, his wit, and how engaging a conversationalist he is. We can have had parts four, five, six, seven, eight, up to ten, no problem. But in this section, we go into a little bit more depth about the art of being a goalkeeper. Who gives you the shivers, the nightmares? We get more understanding of what life was like as somebody who probably had a second birth in terms of football at Spurs. But we ask him maybe more pointed questions than in part one, where, for example, I promise you that you will never have heard a more explicit explanation of some of the vile moments as a goalkeeper that you can suffer. For example, if you go to play away in Costa Rica with your national team. Bags of human product is my way of explaining that this is a slight parental advisory episode. We're going to be speaking about what it was like to face both, I don't know, people like Birdcamp and Thierry Henry and Alan Shearer. Thanks for being there. Enjoy Brad Friedel. I wanted to ask you about learning Olympic values by osmosis because the UCLA time where you are in the company of Olympians doing other things, therefore not just in their elite nests, but out doing something that entertains them and you're watching their values. You played spectacularly well in two big, big uh, Olympic games um, and learned a lot I think from particularly maybe the younger experience in in Barcelona particularly maybe once you'd performed value in the group and been knocked out I wanted to ask you about that but it but you know frankly I have to ask you about goalkeeping and the psychology of becoming better with each passing year but also the, the at, at Galatasaray they, they were throwing so much so much coins at you that you know, effectively, you could have probably retired on that. When you're a goalkeeper, it, it is irrespective of being now. Now, maybe more than when you were playing, it's not 10 men and a goalkeeper, it's 11 men. Maybe you always felt treated like 11 men. Presumably, you always acted that way. But I still always think about you need to be mulishly stubborn to be a goalkeeper. There's you and the three posts. 
there's people forget about bashing your body up all the time, not just with the boots of opponents, but down onto the ground, the damage you do there all the time. But also the psychological weight of people looking at you and relying on you and being judged differently from a manager, from being judged differently from a chairman and being judged differently from every other one of your teammates. That changes a man's mind and, and, and it needs a gigantic personality, I believe. Your mistakes generally lead to a goal against. That's that's number one. So straight away when you... The way that I like live my live my uh, time in between games was I I trained like a, a a crazy man. I was always really fit. I loved it. I, I really did. I would do the uh, running with the outfield players, you know, until I got to you know really old. Um, I, I loved being uh, in the gym. I loved doing yoga. I loved all of that, and it, it relaxed me. To be honest with you, it didn't make me more intense. It relaxed me through the week. So then when you got in between the sticks in the game, you were mentally ready for, for everything. Because that's where any of the anxiety or the stress or the, you know, would creep in. And you would have this, a lot more stress as a younger goalkeeper than an older goalkeeper. There's no doubt. You're, it, it's funny. I always put it like when you're young, you have the blinkers on. All you can see is in front of you. And you hear all the noise around you and it's like you make that first great save and the blinkers go back a little bit and the game like (laughs) widens up and everything lightens up the first back pass to you and you slip and it closes like that and the noise gets louder when you get older it's it, it it's easy and um what i found when i got to like 33 34 35 is you see the similar supporters at the grounds that you go and play um, season ticket holders so they can start to have banter and they start to respect you because <laughs> because you've been there so long you know like I remember one at Southampton there was a supporter who used to sit uh, um, when you came out when you came out the to the right um, at Southampton down at, at St. At St. Mary's and he was always if you're looking at the goal to the left about two rows up and he'd, he'd become a bit portly um, as time went on you know, so there was, I'd made a, I'd made a save in a game and the ball, or no, shot went wide, but I, I had it covered and the ball went by, um, went wide and I was going back to pick it up and he was like, and I think I was probably 37 at the time. And he goes, you still playing? And I was like, you put on some timber though, haven't you over the years? You know, and, and the supporters laughed and, and he laughed and it was like, so, and then all that you, I, I couldn't have done that when I was younger, because I was, it was, um, yeah, it was, it was all like, I got to prove myself. I got to do, I got to do this. And if I don't prove myself and, you know, and I'm an American over here and, and I get dope, I have, there's even another standard on top of it that I have to, that I have to prove yep. to people. And, and, you know, I became, um, ob- obsessively uh, superstitious, uh, when I was, when I was gaining the re- respect of, um, you know, my time at, uh, especially my first probably four or five years at Blackburn, like crazily superstitious. Um, and it wasn't, it, it actually wasn't until I, I, I spoke to um, Martin Keown once and uh, he was crazy superstitious. And I was like, as like, it gets to a point 
where it like overtakes your your you know that from the day before a game to the end of the game it's like a, a ball of of stress that you know if you're if you don't eat this if you don't go there if you don't drive in that car if you don't go this way if, brad isn't it an addiction yeah it, it it it's like and so what martin keown said he goes i was like that he goes and what i ended up saying to myself my superstition now is if i'm ever superstitious then I'll, you know it's all going to go to shit you know and and you also you also it for me it became less like once i knew like i just i i knew that i was doing pretty well what i prided myself looking back on it not while i was doing it was i was consistent i, I you know i i may not have been the best shot stopper in the uh, in the league you know on any given year but i was usually in the top 3 or 4 like you know i it, and and every year you know kind of like you know, I, I wouldn't have been the best at catching crosses, but I wouldn't have been bad. I, you know, I, I tried to be consistent throughout the time. And I think that's where why I was able to play and be a starter with so many different managers because they they could go. There's the consistency. So to get to your point, people are throwing coins at you. I mean, I even had a dart, a lawn dart thrown at me at the cup final in the Fener- from a Fenerbahce supporter. Um, I mean, the thing, the thing was large, landed about like six, eight feet away from me. You know, uh, playing in Costa Rica, uh, Saprissa Stadium, they fill bags of piss, um, big bags of piss, and they throw it and they had like the chicken wire around the stadium yeah. and it would, it would hit and it splatter all over you. I remember in, in Costa Rica as well, I would go down to pick up a ball for a goal kick and I must have gotten spit on 50 times. The fans and and I'm and I'm the one that got booked because I went to the referee. I said, "Look at my look at my kit," and he's like, "You're wasting time." And we were losing one nil. I was like, "How am I wasting time?" I was like, "You're booking me." And then at halftime, he said, "He goes, I booked you because if I do it the opposite way, we could incite a riot." I said, "I am being spit on. I'm having piss thrown on me, and you're booking me." My point is, as a goalkeeper, no matter what you're feeling inside. The outside can't look like that, and you learn how you learn how to deal with that. So, the best goalkeepers in the world, for me, are the ones where the mistake doesn't bother them because we all make them, and it doesn't matter if you're a Neuer, you know, or, or levels levels below. Everyone makes a mistake. After the mistake, you have to learn to calm it down, and if you can't. You will never be one of the most successful goalkeepers. Okay, so you saying that, you know, I've got goosebumps because I recognise the art. I understand that the thing you are talking about separates great human beings from other human beings, not just footballers. And it makes sense. It clicks. So fine. And and, and uh, we knew coming into this that you were articulate. And I imagine you'd be a, a superb teacher, superb coach. But saying all these things, knowing that truth and achieving it inside this mad machine that we're all given up top, achieving that that you've just explained so articulately, that's not easy. How did you do it? You have to have a talent as, as a sportsman or woman. Like, you know, you mentioned UCLA. I mean, at, at one time, and this is no bullshit, like I had Carl Lewis lifting weights on my right and Jackie Joyner cursing on my left. Well... Yeah, they could lift a lot of weights, and yeah, they were coached by the best. They were good athletes. Just without a weight, they were good athletes, right? You know, so you you have to have 
you you have to have the tools to it um, as well. The the best answer, Graham, is a, there's two to it. One is hard work. I, you know, I've never seen I, I've never seen. Um, I'll, I'll just use his name again because his free kicks were stunningly accurate. David Beckham didn't get good at free kicks because he went home at eleven o'clock every day. Georgie Hodge, who I was with for a short time at Galatasaray, was not good at free kicks because he went home at 11.30 every day. Repetition, 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 repetition. So the hard work and, and determination, all that stuff, you have to have that with your talent. But the second answer, Graham, is I don't know the answer. It happens. And people are what do you mean it happens? This is how it happens. I start with under seven football. And I make the next team. Okay, natural. Now I'm on the under nines. Um, then we have tryouts again when I'm 10. You know, you're, when you're 10, and I make the under 11s. Then I get asked to play basketball, and I go and I try out, and I've never been coached. Yet you made that team. Okay. You ask me how? Don't know. I'm a young kid. I just, so talent. Okay. It's just talent. Now you go up, now you start getting coached. Right? And... If a coach ever told me, uh, the American football coach told me I'd never amount to anything in my life if I didn't play American football. It was in the same season as soccer. So for me, in the way that my attitude is, I was like, instead of going home and going, oh, mom, I think I have to play American football. I, I went, I didn't even tell my mom. I just went, I, I, I walked out and I said, I'm going to play my football. You know, and that's where it was, you know, and I think my, you use the word stubborn, I'm stubborn as can be. And I think my stubbornness uh, hurt a couple times as well. You know, like, I think I probably would have started um, in the 1994 World Cup if I had signed for Adidas. Ahead of Miola. Yeah, but he signed for Adidas. I was offered the contract first. And I was told by many sources that, like, why didn't you sign? Well, here's the reason that I didn't sign. My deal with Sandico and Reebok was paying like 300 grand a year and Adidas offered me 25 grand a year. So it wasn't like 25 and 30. It was a big difference, right? Now, um, I'm just not the political guy to play that game. You said why I was owned by Milan Mandridge because I told U.S. soccer the same thing. I am not signing, you're a federation. I'm not signing a contract with you on a month to month basis. So you own my rights. You're a federation. So Milan took it over. And then, and it was the best thing that I did because I got to Europe shortly, shortly after that. You're you're asking how do you do it? You know the co- the coaching. You go to the big clubs and the coaching. The coaches can help you. Um, and people say this, and I, I and when I coach young children, I try to ask them how did you do that? How did you do that? Because I used to bump, jump on boxes, you know, up here at UCLA, you know, with with all the NFL guys and stuff like that. How do you walk out at Wembley and not be nervous? I don't know. And I'm, I'm sorry, I can't answer it like better than that. Like, do I, am I just reassured in myself that I was good? I don't know. Cause inside I had these superstitions. I was just as nervous as somebody else, you know, but like once, once I got over the, the white line, so to speak, it was all just seemed normal. Before the rest of this big interview, I'd like to tell you that our entire archive of audio and video content is now on our new YouTube channel. We've begun filming all of our interviews, and there are already loads of clips with guests, including Rio Ferdinand, Connor Cody, Brendan Rogers, and Jamie Carragher, plus full interviews for you to watch and to share. 
please do share with friends. Go to YouTube and search Graham Hunter or click on the link in the show notes to this episode and become a subscriber. I honestly think you'll enjoy it. Thanks. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It feels to me as if, um, you know, I'm a believer, so I'm glad that God blessed you with that that mix of abilities. But it's clear that without going back to it from, you know, you've only told us about your grandparents through parents, but upbringing, attitude, genes, I, I think we can understand why you got there. But I love the, and one day we'll come back to this thing that I now talk about, the goldfish memory, where, whereby it's certainly in golfers, but in keepers too, when you talk about that, if you can just goldfish it and go, okay, that's gone. I can't do that over certain arguments with people or if I've used a word badly on television and, I, and it'll, you know, it'll, it'll live with me and drive me crazy sometimes for days or weeks or, okay, sometimes for hours. But that ability to, to erase something where you've made a mistake or you know you've done something wrong or let yourself down and be as good as you should be in five minutes or five seconds or 50 minutes or a day later. I think that's a huge part of success in both life and sport. But we're running, we're running down the clock, and so out of respect, um, I want to say sorry to Brian Johnson and Andrew, Andrew Pod. Brian, I, I, Brian is very clear you were better than both your competitors at Liverpool. Andrew um, wanted to know about the difference between the club at Liverpool and Blackburn and how much he, he, uh, he thought you were amazing at Blackburn. We talked a little bit about um, World Cups and Michael English was talking about, I think Michael got the closest to his answers. But I want to finish with two quick ones. Um, this one is simple and much more much more fun. Our sponsors, Bet365, want to know about which is the opposition player across your career that you most dislike coming up against, where you're like, superstition or not, it's this guy. He's He's got something on me. Was there one? Sure. This guy, man, like, I... I was a goalkeeper that I communicated a lot. And I, I tried to, um, especially at, at Blackburn at times, and we had good teams, by the way. Blackburn, I mean, to touch on that question, um, that was Blackburn was run by a different board. We were good. We had, we had very, very formidable teams back then with Graham Sunis and Mark Hughes at the helm. Um, so, you know, very rarely would we go into a game thinking that we were going to lose no matter where we were playing. But every now and again, you would play the, the great Arsenal team or the great, 
you know, the, the great Man United team. And yeah, and you were up, you were up against it, of course. But uh, but many teams across Europe would have been up against it. You know, it was so anyways. But Alan Shearer, he was at Newcastle and there were times where the Newcastle side wasn't wasn't great. But I would scan the field and, and I knew he, you know, at certain moments, OK, Shearer is going to be making his run across and he's going to get to that near post. I know he's going to be there. I'm going to make sure that that I'm going to make sure I'm positioned there. And before I know it, the ball's behind me. At that time, I was in my early 30s, so, you know, I was calm, and, I, you know, I, I, I could I'd get pictures in my head, you're playing Arsenal. The, the other one that I would, I would put in that is Dennis Bergkamp. So those were probably the two. And, and Dennis, I'd, I'd, I'd have to look. I'm sure he scored a, a goal or something on me, but it was his orchestration of what was happening. And I would try to communicate to stop it. And the second, like, you would... For a five-minute spell, you'd like shut him down. He was so clever, and, and he used to then find the space somewhere else. And and then I would see Thierry Henry drifting off, and I just knew that I'm facing a, a one-on-one with Henry on my right-hand side. I can't cheat to go to the le- to my far post because then I'll whip it to the near post. I'm gonna have to stand my ground, and if he hits it accurately, it's a goal because I won't be able to save it from this angle. Like it, 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 it was maddening. You know, and, and so you, what I had to try to do, and, and it's so much difficult, so hard um, for anyone to stop Henri when he was in his in his heyday. But it was Burkamp for me that was orchestrating it. Henri was finishing it off, you know, and and it was just it was so hard to stop him um, from getting in his in his spaces. And then with Sheer, he could score all different ways. He was friends with a, a good friend of mine, you know, and he used to have banter. Off, off the field before we were playing, like just indirectly. I never like text. I don't. I don't even have Alan's number or anything. But we would like have banter. Like, there's no way I'm letting him, you know, have a near post goal this time. Bam, goal, two goals. You know, and I'm thinking, like, whereas I think if Michael Owen did an interview, like he, he, whenever he was on a breakaway with me, he never scored. Like, it was, I just had like I had his number, maybe because I faced so many shots from him in training, and I just knew it. With Alan, I, I would be like. I'd, I'd like wake up in the morning. No way, Alan Shearer is scoring on me today. And then even when we won a game three two, Alan Shearer too. Amongst those talents you mentioned, he had the because he's not a big guy, and all right, his thigh muscles are are in good shape. But he had the sweetest connection with the football in order to generate power for for kilo to 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 force. People ask like you know the greatest finishers. Uh, actually, put it this way: John McDermott asked me when I was at Tottenham. What's Harry Kane like, really? And because uh, I was doing my coaching, and Harry was with the the academy, and then coming up, and I and I said he has a back lift and a whip like Fowler, and power of Shearer. And John McDermott looked at me. He goes, "What are you smoking?" And I was like, "I was like, I know I'm old. You know, I know I'm old there, but I'm still training with the first team, and I'm still facing shots from everyone." I said, I "I'm finding it really difficult, John." to ever stop Harry Kane's shots. And if I do save them, I'm not holding them. I'm not even close to holding them. I'm, I'm just happy to get something on it. Wow. And he was like, really? And then Robbie, I saw him, he was doing his badges. Um, uh, I saw him at St. George's Park. And he said, Harry Kane, real deal? I said, phenomenal, Robbie. You know, like he, 
I said, you know how your back lift is, was nothing? Because that's what Robbie was, was the best at. And just to, so that listeners understand, the, the, one of the keys for a keeper there is the back lift is short. You get very little time to either read it or, or check whether your positioning's right. We usually take like a little hop, you know, sometimes forward, back. Or, or our feet are, are, you know, at some stage you have to get light on your feet before you can push off and power. He goes, so a trigger on a lot of players, when they lift up that great big back lift, you can take your your little your little hop and then you're ready. What happen what you don't count for is the real short ones. And Harry Kane's, Alan Shearer's, Robbie Fowler's, the real short back lifts. And, and and you're in the air as the ball's leaving their foot. So then you have to come down and then go and, and you're dead. And and on top of that, with the three that I just mentioned, their accuracy was so good that you know, the, the Van Nistelroys as well, you know, he had a little bit more of a little bit more of a wind-up but his accuracy on his finishing you know right in the corner and if you if you ever slipped that little bit if you ever had you know if you ever just on your heels a little bit go the last one is important to me because we started this exercise wanting to hear from you and i'd like to see you as involved and satisfied either in the development of u.s football or back in the uk i'd like to see the Best Brad Friedel from 50 onwards, as we saw uh, in his professional career across all the countries in which he played. What would be the things, Brad, that if you could, if I could open the box and give it to you, that would satisfy you, say, for the next 10 years of your professional work, that would give you uh, the, 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 the pleasure and professional satisfaction to, to the max. I'd love to be a, um, and I think I've educated myself enough on this, a sporting director. Ah, brilliant. Since I've uh, re- retired, I've done everything, always involved in football, but from the punditry side to the head coach of the youth national side, the head coach of a, of a senior team, own and operate the U.S. office for promo sport, and I'm really enjoying the agency work. You know, and everything. Now that I've, I've done the last two years, a lot of a, a lot of work on the business side of football. That would be outstanding. And one of the one of the things, like I, I really feel for uh, Nuno right now, I, and, and I do, yeah. and it did not work out for him. No, no doubt. And you can't lose five games out of ten. And you know, when you're in the hot, when you're at a club like a Tottenham, but you could tell now, and you see the quotes that come out that he was never their guy, anyways. I, I had a real bitter time and it was the unhappiest that I'd ever been in my life um, my last sort of six months as a head coach at New England when you're not given sort of the keys to the castle to do what is needed um, it's really hard to succeed going into the head coaching again I'm not so sure that would please me because if it if I ever saw a sight of what went on you know it's very hard to govern what's above you sometimes below you is pretty not simple but it's it's what we're what someone like myself is very much educated for what's above you when you can't control it it's it's such an unknown and it's so unstable and it's so frustrating that you know that I don't think if you said 10 years, would you want to do that? I, I don't think it is because the the constantly looking over your shoulder and the constant, like if, if it was only the players that you'd have to deal with, fantastic. 
The phrase managing upwards now is used a lot and there are very few managers who are good at it. Fergie in his way was, but Ancelotti's very good because he came through under Berlusconi. But there are a few managers who are good at managing upwards and it's an extra task that a successful coach manager doesn't really need to have to do. There's so there's such a universe of work and difficulties and unpredictable things about managing a group of players and then managing matches that to manage up is a drain on resources, but it, but unfortunately, it's now essential. You have to do it. So, like, I would you, you're saying, like, if you gave you a box, like, I would would rather be the guy that's hiring the guy, but knowing in my mind that I want continuity. You know, like it, it as you know, but that would be somebody that's even above me, giving me the keys to. You know, and giving me the uh, the responsibilities and the trust to run it properly. You give me the budget, we'll run it. You know, and um, because the when you go into these projects and then you see six months fired. I mean, in Spain, I mean, sometimes it's it's crazy. Three games, yep. you're out. Italy, yep. four games, and you're out. And you think <laughs> you think like, do you even have you even seen a like one training session? But in one meeting, like it's 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 strange. It's a very bizarre business sometimes. When you see it, the coaching but side of it. My take on this, um, Brad, is, as we call a halt to this session, is that I, my understanding is that apart from bringing excellence and intelligence and experience into a sporting director, director of football role, I can fully imagine you, um, over a period of time at the right club, imbuing a culture around a club, its attitudes, its decisions, the training ground, the the employees beyond that and I think the great clubs that I've witnessed during my life have that somebody who isn't simply he or she isn't simply good at their job but generates a, a cultural uh, change and unity teaches well shows well and that becomes something that's identifiable about the club from its decision making to its attitudes to its fans buying selling playing and and hopefully winning I, I wish I had that box to open for you. Um, I hope I'll see it uh, coming true soon. It occurs to me that Newcastle... Newcastle don't have one of those just yet. That's a strange... Uh, not a strange purchase. Buying Newcastle is not a strange purchase. But the position that they're in, because they could be the, the... They could very well be the richest club in the world that is playing in the championship. Right now they're in jeopardy. Yeah, well, it, it's hard. Like People are like, oh, we're rich. We're going to have all this money. January windows are hard to get your players in. Like, it, it's not easy. And you, they might find themselves, you know, six, eight points adrift before they start getting themselves in. And I don't know. Like, it's not a – just because they got money now, it's not a foregone conclusion they're staying in the league. The clock is ticking, and as in a series that I never watched, but I know the phrase is famous, winter – is coming. I believe that's a Game of Thrones quote. Winter is coming, but uh, uh, for for Newcastle, the, the clock is ticking and winter is coming in in a metaphorical sense. Brad, I can't describe how enjoyable it is listening to somebody of your talent explain things like you did there. The listeners are going to feel identically. We owe you a great debt. If if these guys or if I, my producers, listeners, if or, or I, can do your turn in some way or another. Um, we will, and our listeners will undoubtedly, when we put this out, tell you what a first-class experience that was. Just pure joy. Thank you for being so generous with your time and your stories, and Godspeed, Brad Friedel. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Take care of yourself, and hopefully we'll cross paths soon. 
Thank you for listening to The Big Interview. It's produced by me, which sounds egotistical, but it's also true, Graham Hunter, and Backpage. Our music is by Beer Jacket, who else? Editing by Charlie McGarry. Thank you to our hosts at Acast and our loyal sponsors at Bet365. We're also supported by our socios. Find out how to become a socio, how to support us, at patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter. Here endeth the lesson.